0: Welcome back to New Books in Religion. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Jane about her great new book, Selling Yoga From Counterculture to Pop Culture, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Is yoga religious? This question has not only been asked recently in the broader public, but also posed in the courts. Many argue that, of course, it is. The story of yoga in popular imagination is often narrated as an ancient wisdom tradition that informs contemporary postural movements, which are intricately connected and indivisible. Others contend that contemporary yoga is simply a set of health practices that have nothing to do with religion. In this great new book, Andrea Jane helps us navigate the recent history of yoga in the West and the debates surrounding its religious nature. Overall, what we find is that while yoga has been mediated through an emerging global consumer market and branded for strategic purposes, it can still be seen to serve the function of a body of religious practice for many practitioners. In our conversation, we discussed Hindu, Buddhist, Jain variations of yogic practices, Idocratics, Church of Yoga, Legal Definitions, Iyengar, Siddha, and Anusara Yogas, Theosophists and Transcendentalists, Swami Vivekananda's Vedanta Society, Counterculture Yogis, Consumer Culture in the Mass Market, Christian yoga phobia, the Hindu American foundation and the politics of yoga. I hope you enjoy our conversation and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Joining me today is Andrea Jane, and we're talking about her great new book Selling Yoga from Counterculture to Pop Culture. How's it going, Andrea? How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me. This is a a really fascinating book, uh bringing together religious studies, uh economics, uh, kind of postmodern culture, all sorts of interesting stuff. So I'm excited to get into it. But uh, as per tradition, we usually start with a little bit about you and how you got interested in the study of religion, um, if there was perhaps uh, mentors that you had that were particularly influential in either the content that you're studying or the approach that you take. How did you get interested in all this?
1: Sure. Well, I became interested in the study of religion from a really young age. Um, My research now focuses on yoga in in contemporary culture, especially its global popularization. Um, That wasn't always my interest, but like popularized yoga, I'm the product of cultural heterogeneity and the consequent encounters between previously isolated cultures in the late 20th century and early 21st century. I'm the daughter of a white mother who grew up in a small blue-collar Protestant community in Illinois and an Indian father from Mumbai who was raised in an elite Jane Digambara family and immigrated to the United States uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, So needless to say, religious and cultural heterogeneity have been lived realities for me for as long as I can remember. Uh, And I first became interested in the ways Religions were contingent on particular social contexts. When uh, living in Dallas, Texas, I was uh, admitted to an elite, conservative, Christian, evangelical grade school, and there I was driven to rigorous study of the Bible. For the, um, I was personally motivated. We we all had to engage in such rigorous study, but uh, I was personally motivated. For the sake of debating my very conservative teachers on the social contingencies of the biblical books. And of course, I couldn't have articulated it like that back then. <laughs> but um, I knew that I was opposed to what my teachers thought were the correct and literal interpretations of the Bible. Um, uh, and I, I thought of their interpretations as uh, having dangerous and oppressive consequences uh, especially for gender and religious minorities. Um, and then, so that's when I became really interested on the social contingencies of religions. Um, then when I first stepped on to a college campus, my first day of my freshman year, I knew I could never leave academia because I'd never felt so at home anywhere. Um, So I started studying uh, psychology and philosophy were my majors. I didn't know about the field of religious studies. I thought if I wanted to study the history of religions and uh, the the social dimensions of religion, um, I would have to do that in these other areas. Uh, It wasn't until later that I took a course for my philosophy major, uh, philosophy of religion. um, That was actually... Taught by a religious studies professor, and it was that through through that route that I became familiar with the field of religious studies and realized that's where I really belonged. Um, I, was, I studied with uh, Bill Barnard, who is still at my uh, at the college where I was as an undergraduate, which is SMU Southern Methodist University. And it was taking his courses on uh, Indian religions that got me particularly interested in uh, Hindu and Buddhist and Jain traditions. Uh, So I went to graduate school at Rice University. Um, I I chose to go there because I wanted to study with Jeffrey Kripal. I was interested in psychoanalysis and religion, um, and again, uh, Indian religions. And um, so I started uh, my graduate career there uh, working toward a a doctoral degree in religious studies. And uh, luckily, I was able to go on a research trip to India. And this was in 2006. Um, and I had the opportunity to travel to Rajasthan to research Jain traditions uh, during a during a summer semester. And I came upon the Jain Shwetumbra Terrapant, a Jain sectarian tradition and its guru at the time, uh, Mahapragna, who was famous for having introduced a new form of Jain yoga called Preksha Dhyana. Um, I I found myself completely unable to grasp and fully understand the contrast between the world, society, and body-negating ascetic ideology of traditional monastic Jain thought, and Mahapragna's active advocacy for modern conceptions of Peace, physical health, psychological well-being, and and even physical fitness. And so this led to many years of research, which eventually culminated in a dissertation, uh, which really was an ethnographic study of the Jane Terrapunt as um, a case study of modern yoga. Uh, But it really focused on the Terrapunt and its uh, particular school of modern yoga, Preksha Dhyana. Uh, I eventually then, following the completion of my dissertation, started writing Selling Yoga, um, in which Preksha Dhyana served as one case study among many uh, uh, of modern yoga in the late 20th century.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, how this project emerged as a book. When did you start to think of this as something that deserves a book, a book length analysis?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I suppose that I always planned on writing a book about the modern popularization of yoga. As soon as I discovered Prishadana, Um I became really interested in how you know, d- you, it, it, nearly immediately upon uh, discovering Prishyana, um, I was interested in how it reflected a larger transnational pattern. Um, I basically was certain that I was witnessing an attempt on the part of this particular Jain sect to establish continuity with a global yoga industry in which popularized varieties of postural yoga reflect the dominant consumer demands and desires. So, I wanted to uh, focus in the dissertation on this particular g- case study, but I, I planned to eventually produce a book that would provide a larger theory of the popularization of yoga. And um, in order to, uh, to further explore the global yoga industry and how popularized varieties of yoga have come to intersect with uh, dominant consumer demands and desires. Mm.
0: Now, um, you explicitly state you're you're writing both for kind of an academic audience who might be interested in this either in South Asian religions or religious studies, um, but also to p- p- a popular audience, people who do yoga. Um, did that uh, kind of um, forethought on your audience, uh, did that affect how you approach writing differently or uh, – did yeah. You,
1: yeah. Yeah. I was sorry to catch you off there, but yeah, absolutely. It was a challenge, really, to speak to multiple audiences. Uh, I wanted to speak to a wider audience that would include the wide varieties of, of those who actually do yoga. Uh, and so I deliberately wrote Selling Yoga in a more accessible style and speaking to a wider set of questions and concerns than are usually appealed to in academia. Uh, but, you know, being able to do that, coming right out of graduate school, where I was uh, rigorously trained to speak academies to other academics, uh, it was a real challenge, and it took several drafts. Uh, and in several more years of work, ultimately I finished my PhD in 2010, and the book was published In December of 2014. So it it took a few years for me to, uh, you know, write the additional material that I wanted to include in the book, but also to learn how to write to that wider audience. And uh, it was thanks to my editor at Oxford, Cynthia Reed. Uh, I really owe her a debt of gratitude because she was very patient with me. (laughs) And, uh, you know gave me a lot of feedback and a lot of advice on how I could tweak my language cut you know what I should cut and um how I should adjust my uh vocabulary and everything to uh, uh, speaking to a larger audience
0: well i think you were very successful it's very very readable very engaging and and uh really captures your attention throughout so Congratulations, Thank
1: yeah. Thank you. Well, it took a lot of work. It was it didn't come easily to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, one theme that uh, runs through the book, which uh, you, you address in various places, so I kind of wanted to bring it up now because I think anyone studying religion will be interested in this, but ideas about uh, essentialist characteristics, about borrowing, about exclusivity, about cultural uh, negotiations, you're you're talking about various traditions, Hindu, Buddhist, Jain. You're talking about East and West in scare quotes. You're talking about religious versus secular society. Um, This, for me, uh, I think comes up uh, all over in the study of religion. So how would you recommend we approach these kind of contested categories that are defined differently across traditions. Uh, do you have any advice for thinking about, um, uh, the way we talk about these things that, uh, move and, and are shaped variously, uh, uh, in, in different contexts?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that we should, first of all, uh, recognize that yoga is just a case study of a much larger, uh, human phenomenon, that is that we tend to produce these religious products and those religious products are perpetually context sensitive. Uh, They're perpetually in flux. Uh, And so uh, yoga is just one example of really a point that I'm, I'm striving to make about religion. Generally, I talked about how when I first Got interested in religion, it was when I was actually a kid and I was actually studying the Bible then. Uh, and what interested me about religion then is what interests me today about the study of yoga. Uh, and that is the way that yoga is perpetually in flux, that there is actually, from a historical perspective, no legitimate, authentic, orthodox, or original tradition as both many yoga insiders and many yoga outsiders want to claim. And so really my motivation in writing this book and uh, a motivation underlying my career at large is to convince people to let go of uh, the, the the static categories that we often resort to in talking about religion. uh, And instead recognize that, that, these are all socially contingent and and, and always changing. And there's no uh, legitimate historical uh, project when it comes to identifying an authentic or original tradition, whether it be Christianity or whether it be yoga or whether it be Hinduism or or uh, or or. Islam, right? There is no Christianity. There's only Christian traditions. There is no Islam. There's only Islamic traditions. Of course, that's that's uh, of course highly offensive to again uh, many many of the insiders to these traditions who want to claim that there is a a static, unchanging essence and a static orthodoxy, a right way or a right path, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just don't think that, you know, if we are really honestly committed to the historical critical method, we could assume any of those claims to be true. Mm.
0: Yeah. And that, uh, comes up uh, throughout the book in the sense that you're often dealing with yoga in kind of a, a popular imagination. Um, so for, for those who might not be familiar with kind of how narratives about yoga go, um, could you tell us if we were to assert that there is a monolithic yoga tradition? How how might one tell this story? Where would one begin?
1: Uh, do you mean in the popular imagination, how it's usually conceived?
0: Yeah. What's, what's the kind of common narrative about yoga and its okay. origins that you're often uh, trying to analyze and understand in the book?
1: Sure. Yeah. So... Uh, there are a couple different narratives that tend to you know be dominant in the popular imagination some there's there's some uh variations but the main patterns tend to be that uh, yoga is popularly imagined as having uh ancient origins uh, in India uh, many imagine those origins as being Hindu and uh, especially tied to particular Hindu traditions, for example, the textual tradition uh, um, of the Yoga Sutras Uh, and sometimes going farther back. The Yoga Sutras can be dated to about the fourth century CE, but uh, yoga is oftentimes imagined as going even farther back than that. You know, that which is conceived of as the original codification of yoga, the Yoga Sutras Um, going farther back to uh, the Hindu Veda uh, from, you know, about 1500 BCE, or even farther to the Indus Valley civilization of uh, about 2500 BCE. And so when I say ancient origins, I mean really ancient origins. Um, The Yoga Sutra is often cited as the Uh, original codification of yoga. The first time yoga was really systematized in a text. That's also traditionally thought of as a Hindu text. And that's why yoga is oftentimes imagined as being originally Hindu.
0: Now, as we move into the more modern period, um, we see yoga being, uh, defined engaged in uh, what you kind of say is counterculture movements um can you talk a little bit about how western practitioners are engaging with yoga in the late 19th and early 20th century how how is it being viewed at this time yeah
1: sure so yoga of course did not take one hindu form it took many forms for as long as as far back as historians can can study yoga, we've found that yoga has been uh, multifarious. It's taken a variety of Buddhist, Jain, Hindu forms, and then later Islamic forms um, and others. Uh, By the the modern period, yoga was uh, popularly imagined by colonialists as something that was very far from what was provided in the yoga sutras. Um, Yoga was more often associated with the practices of uh, hatha yogis, uh, those practicing hatha yoga, uh, who were engaged in rigorous ascetic practices. And yoga was um, a very metaphysical practice. It was about manipulating subtle energies within the body and was believed to result in uh, all sorts of superna- supernatural powers. And so, as David Gordon White has said, yogis were thought of as, even by Indians, not just the colonial- colonialists, but yogis were popularly imagined as the boogeymen, um, those who could read your thoughts or sneak into your house at night without being seen. They had all sorts of uh, supernatural powers that were were associated with them. Um, Mark Singleton wrote a book that my work builds on, uh, on the late 19th century and early 20th century construction of modern yoga that sought to basically disassociate yoga from colonialist stereotypes and um, these popular Indian stereotypes and instead associated it with a very uh, rational uh, uh, ideological tradition and one that was rooted in meditation and eventually uh, physical fitness. Um, so that was a very long process that involved uh, many campaigns, including, Uh, And one of the most significant just given it's uh, given how well known it is, is the campaign by Swami Vivekananda who traveled to the United States in the late uh, 19th century, sorry, late 20th century. And, or no, sorry, I had to write the first time the late 19th century. And he sought to disseminate his vision of yoga, which he linked to the yoga sutras. He, emphasized the meditative and philosophical dimensions uh, and and he, he was very successful in reaching a large American uh, and Western European audience with this new vision of yoga that he claimed was very scientific. nonetheless it was still countercultural. Uh, yoga was still something that was in India, primarily associated with the Hatha yogis and uh, beyond India was still thought of as counter to Christian orthodoxy and dangerous, especially because it attracted women and was thought of as something that would, you know, steal women away from their marital commitments. And so uh, there were also far more radical or early modern yogis who have largely been ignored in the history books of modern yoga. And I've attempted in selling yoga to illuminate some of those figures in, in really do so in a way that situates them in the history of modern yoga. Uh, for example, I, Ida Craddock was a uh, uh, American uh, turn of the century, American uh, yoga radical. And Pierre Bernard was her contemporary. Both of them attempted to co-opt yoga in a way that married it to um, to the- theistic conceptions about God that they drew from Christian traditions, as well as modern conceptions of health and fitness. Uh, they were far less successful than Vivekananda. They were oftentimes quieted and and even uh, imprisoned. Both of them were imprisoned at different times. Iacchadic ended up killing herself for fear of greater imprisonment uh, because she was well, she was certain to go to pr- prison. Be, so she was certain she would return to prison for what um, people claimed was the obscenity of her texts on on yoga and sex. So it wasn't until much later that yoga became something. Uh, that was popularly practiced and was thought of as uh, mainstream rather than, you know, on the margins of society in India and beyond. Mm.
0: Yeah, and you make the argument that uh, there's a convergence of factors that kind of makes this possible. So you, you uh, say that mobility uh, in a kind of modern contemporary world Uh, religious disillusionment, and emerging global consumer markets uh, foster the development of modern yoga in a particular way. Can can you talk about what's going on at this moment?
1: Yeah, so what I'm attempting to do there is to identify how yoga came to establish continuity with consumer culture. Because I'm ultimately arguing that it was only through um, yoga entrepreneurs in the late 20th century developing that continuity with consumer culture that yoga was able to undergo popularization around the world in India, in the US and Western Europe and, and eventually nearly everywhere. Uh, uh, so yeah, I look at the developments that enabled the global popularization of posture yoga first in the sense of just giving yoga uh, more visibility and so that included uh, in the late twentieth century the new freedom and physical mobility, as you mentioned, just the ability to travel. Um, there, you know, increasingly yoga gurus were traveling across India, were traveling uh, to the United States and to Western Europe, um, and disseminating various schools of, of yoga. And so that gave them, uh, you know, the physical mobility gave them increased. Visibility, um, and then there was also widespread disillusionment with established religious institutions, and this was primarily in the 1960s with with the British American counterculture and new gurus, or what have popular or, or have, have been referred to in um, in religious studies cir- circles as Godmen, uh, because they were often thought of as embodiments of God. Uh, these Gurus broke into the competitive spiritual market with wares that were prescribed as solutions to modern problems and the disillusionment with traditional religions and so you had this this transnational rise in adherence to these uh, guru figures who I in the book call entrepreneurial godmen and the reason I call them entrepreneurial godmen is because they were doing something very different from what traditional gurus had done—the uh, the traditional gurus who had come before them, prior to the late twentieth century—and that is, they were actively seeking disciples. Uh, they were traveling and marketing their their religious systems in ways that hadn't that that was not a standard method for traditional gurus who uh, would rather be associated with a particular ashram or a particular location or region. And disciples were expected to come to them. So in order to learn yoga, you had to find a guru in an ashram and go to that isolated place and study in a one-on-one relationship. These entrepreneurial godmen in the late 20th century were doing just the opposite. They were leaving the ashrams. They were going out and seeking students and And um, actively uh, m- marketing and tweaking their systems in order to speak to large target audiences. Um, finally, I would just add as a kind of as a general broad pattern, that m- modern postural yoga in particular, which is the system of yoga that has gone po- undergone popularization to the greatest degree, the system of yoga focused on physical fitness through rigorous postures and breathing exercises that through which the breath is synchronized with physical movement. Uh, that particular school of yoga increasingly intersected with the emergent global consumer culture uh, through these efforts of gurus who sought to align the aims of modern postural yoga with. Popular demands and desires, such as increased physical fitness, according to modern conceptions of health and well-being.
0: Now, these these kind of practices get played out more in the following chapters, where you focus on issues of branding, a particular style or uh, persona um, in relation to a consumer audience. So, uh, before you kind of talk about the the particular examples you have, you you have a little bit in the book about kind of the relationship between consumption, um, identity and, and yoga's, uh, various fields of meanings in general. Can you talk a little bit about how yoga branding can signify meaning for an audience?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, these yoga entrepreneurs ended up branding their yoga systems and what I what I really mean by that is that they came to link their particular yoga systems to popular desire, consumer desires through the use of a particular name or term or symbol um, that signaled their particular something particular about their yoga system uh, and. We tend then, because we see these processes alive in the the contemporary yoga industry, processes like brand image management, we tend to assume that we can reduce yoga to its commodities. But in fact, I argue that although yoga certainly is uh, in its popularized varieties, is certainly a product of consumer culture, and entails countless varieties, and is in fact, in the United States alone, a multi-billion-dollar industry. Uh, nonetheless, many yoga practitioners claim that yoga plays a certain role in their life that um, that I think testifies to my argument that we can't reduce yoga to its commodities. So in other words, uh, yoga in its popularized forms is a product of consumer culture. It does uh, intersect with global market capitalism and, and its various commodities, but it can't be reduced to those commodities uh, because it is, Instead, something that for many, not all, yoga practitioners um, is transformative. They testify to it being extraordinarily powerful in their lives. They describe it as spiritual. Um, They describe it as a maybe they, they they probably wouldn't use the word ritual, but they do talk about yoga as a practice that is set apart from their ordinary. A day-to-day regimen that has a special place uh, where they transform as individuals. And I think these kinds of claims on the part of yoga insiders should be taken seriously from religious studies scholars. Uh, and so if we really start honing in on on these dimensions of modern postural yoga, we can find, you know, I think it's inevitable that we will conclude that yoga even in its popularized varieties, even immersed in uh, countless commodities, is or, or can serve as a body of religious practice.
0: Now, this uh, you, you talk about this in a, in a few kind of important case studies, I guess you could call them, um, that each kind of have their own unique identity and, and their own unique branding uh, of its own. So um, the first one you talk about is uh, this figure, BKS, uh, Iyengar. Iyengar, yeah. Iyengar. Um, could, could you tell us about who this person was? Um, how did he frame his system? And, and what made his uh, yogic system stand out?
1: Yeah, sure. So Iyengar, uh, he studied with, Krishnamacharya, in India, in Mysore, uh, in the 1930s. And he is a particularly interesting case. He actually was... Krishnamacharya is... um, And and I don't... This isn't a history that I trace uh, in my book, but I draw from, rather, Mark Singleton's yoga body on the figure of Krishnamacharya. But Krishnamacharya, in short, was a... Uh, was a, was one, among the first to teach yoga as a physical discipline that intersected with physical fitness. And it was many of his disciples who first went out and started teaching what we today call modern postural yoga. Uh, and so Iyengar was the brother-in-law of Krishnamacharya. And Iyengar had suffered... Many illnesses as a young boy, and was really sickly and weak. And he went to Krishnamacharya, and with the hope that his brother-in-law could help him strengthen his body and his physical health. And Krishnamacharya had no no hope for him. He he kind of, he kind of ignored him really, and he you know allowed him to be there at the yoga school, but he gave him very little attention. Uh, Nevertheless, Iyengar practiced his uh, guru's teachings and he became extremely uh, physically fit and uh, his life was transformed through modern postural Yoga. And so he went on, he moved to Pune first uh, to, to teach yoga himself. And luckily, he attracted a few disciples who were very wealthy. And very impressed with his yoga techniques, which he transformed from the techniques he had inherited from his teacher Krishnamacharya. So he introduced, for example, the uses of uh, of various tools for adjusting the body, ropes, and what are called yoga bricks um, that are used to to position the body in the correct yoga posture and, and hold it in that posture. Um, so his, his wealthy disciples in Pune decided, you know, we've got to spread these teachings. We can't allow them to, to, to die with our guru. So they, they paid for him to go to originally London. And teach teach it to students there, and eventually Iyengar traveled to the United States. Um, in both the U.K. and in the U.S., he attracted many, many, many more students with his particular brand of yoga, which came to be known as Iyengar Yoga. And he and they went on to teach students and went on to teach students. So Iyengar was one of the first entrepreneurial gurus who taught modern postural yoga and did so successfully. And um and what I mean by successfully is I mean he attracted very large audiences uh, and ended up producing one of the most uh widely consumed yoga schools to this day. A major part of this process was his publication in nineteen sixty six of Light on Yoga. Uh, and this was a book that is really significant to the history of the popularization of yoga because Light on Yoga, for the first time, was a book that anyone could pick up and read and learn to do yoga um, on their own. They didn't have to, you know, it was, it was a, it, not only did they not have to go to India and find a guru in an ashram they didn't even have to leave their homes. They could simply open up light on, on yoga and, and read Iyengar's uh, very detailed descriptions of the yoga postures and do it themselves. And a, a major part of what enabled yoga to undergo popularization were was the decision on the part of these gurus to adopt the preference-based language of consumer culture. So these gurus started to advocate for a system of yoga that was meant to fit the individual preferences of consumers. So you could pick up light on yoga, for example, and pick and choose among the postures based on your personal needs and preferences.
0: Now, you also focus on another figure, uh, Muktananda, who... Develops his own uh, city Yoga system, which you uh, you classify as uh, modern soteriological yoga. Could you talk a little bit about who Muktananda was and and how his system is differing in both its branding, but also its kind of uh, positioning of its, its own background?
1: Yeah, sure. So what I wanted to do in the book was contrast... Uh, modern postural yoga to other forms of yoga that did not undergo popularization, but nonetheless had high visibility both within India and beyond in the late 20th century. And so one of those schools of yoga is, um, is Muktananda's Siddha yoga. And Muktananda came from a more tantric tradition Uh, and was interested in advocating for a school of yoga that emphasized uh, the central role of kundalini awakening in yoga. So the kundalini, and this is drawn from that Hatha yoga tradition I was talking about earlier, the kundalini is the subtle energy that resides within the body and within most of us is believed to lie dormant. Uh, asleep Uh, and through yoga we seek to awaken her to awaken kundalini uh, and and therefore undergo physical and spiritual transformations through her awakening and so this was really the concern of muktananda and for him the guru played an absolutely central and authoritative role um, because it was through the guru that you had the original uh, awakening of kundalini. And so uh, disciples were dependent on some kind of access to the guru. It didn't have to be a relationship that was developed over many years in, in the isolated context of an ashram. Moktananda instead... Uh, like other entrepreneurial gurus, uh, traveled. Uh, he even left India and came to the United States and actively sought disciples. And, uh, and so disciples didn't have the kind of traditional access to him that they might have to traditional gurus. But uh, nonetheless, it was expected that through your relationship with him, even if brief, Uh, you would undergo this uh, initial kundalini awakening. And again, even if you didn't maintain access to Muktananda because he was traveling from place to place and he developed such a large following that it was impossible for all of his disciples to have a close relationship with him. Nonetheless, guru devotion was very important. Uh, And so these kinds of dimensions of modern soteriological yoga set it apart as distinct from modern postural yoga. Uh, There was far less of an emphasis on a a individualized preference-based approach to religion and lifestyle in the modern soteriological traditions such as Siddha Yoga uh, as there was in the modern postural yoga traditions such as Iyengar Yoga. So whereas Iyengar Yoga could easily be combined with, with a... Christian theism or, or Hindu devotionalism, uh, Siddha yoga and other examples of modern soteriological yoga. Couldn't so easily be, uh, combined with other worldviews and practices because it was linked to a particular soteriology or path to salvation and, and, uh, uh, devotional tradition focused on the guru and uh, metaphysical tradition that was based primarily on this uh, Hatha yogic conception of the subtle body.
0: To to wrap up this chapter, you um, you kind of further your explanatory model of this idea of se- selection, introduction, uh, elaboration, and then fortification through a second generation yoga entrepreneur named john friend who yeah. this is he's a really <laughs> interesting character um so what's going on in the second generation and, and how, how does it help us think about the development of modern postural yoga
1: yeah so the second generation modern postural yoga advocates further distance themselves from a group particular guru lineage uh and so they it, it, it while it's Absolutely important for their own narrative that they still link their school of yoga to having you know ancient Indian origins, and they even establish their own authority by claiming to have studied with uh, with uh, famous Indian gurus. John Friend, for example, studied with both Swami Muktananda and BKS Iyengar. They provide schools of modern yoga that are further distanced from any conception of guru devotion uh, and are, you know, further marketed in ways that are uh, that appeal to an individualized preference based approach to consumer goods. And so John Friend, for example, he. Appropriates from the Yoga Sutras uh, a number of components of yoga, but gives them a very contemporary spin that emphasizes, for example, or emphasized, I should say, because um, I'm talking in the book about his school of Anusara yoga, which because of a number of scandals, eventually, uh, very recently, became delinked from John Friend. But he, when he constructed Anusara yoga, he Again, he appropriated from this ancient tradition in order to claim ancient origins, but he gave it this very modern spin, uh, which emphasized things like friendliness, happiness, joy, uh, in in these other modern conceptions of well-being. And so you'll you know you could go to his Anusara Yoga website and explore. how he described the goals of yoga. And it would be something very unfamiliar to anyone in the yoga world prior to the late 20th century.
0: Now, uh, another aspect of the book um, that you focus on towards the end um, are kind of the politics of yoga and issues of definitional boundaries. Um, and you, you open up this section with a really interesting case on um, the regulation of yoga in Texas. Um, can, you, can you tell us about this example and then what it helps us think about in this idea of uh, classification of yoga?
1: Yeah, sure. So I talk about a couple of different attempts by um, different governments to regulate yoga and uh, they do so you know t- to, to varying degrees in the, in the Texas case they were trying to establish uh, they were trying to categorize yoga teacher training uh, in a way that would require teacher training programs to pay fees to the government uh, and this was strongly opposed by many yoga insiders because yoga was thought of as something that couldn't be reduced to a trade skill. And so they wanted it to be exempt from certain taxes that would be placed on, otherwise placed on teacher training programs. Um, now, I thought of this particular dimension of the politics of yoga as significant to my larger arguments about uh, modern postural yoga and its popularization because if you look at the rhetoric that uh, was behind much of the uh, many of the attempts to advocate against the regulation of yoga in Texas, you can find, and this was, by the way, um, uh, just in the last few years. It wasn't very long ago. In 2010, 2011 is when these debates in Texas were going on. Uh, And you could find an enormous amount of religious rhetoric uh, behind the arguments uh, opposed to regulating yoga. So even though many yoga insiders didn't necessarily call yoga religious, uh, because religion in the popular imagination is often imagined as something that entails a static belief system. uh, And so you can't simultaneously hold two uh, two different belief systems at one time because they would conflict. Uh, And so you're either, right, a Hindu or a Christian. For yoga insiders, yoga doesn't work that way. Yoga doesn't entail a static belief system. And so they avoid the religious category uh, since it has that connotation in the popular imagination. And many of these yoga advocates... Uh, Instead, described yoga as spiritual, as transformative, as something that, uh, you know, doesn't give you a dogma, but gives you a practice that certainly affects your relationship to God, or they might describe it as the divine. Um, Many of them, you know, explicitly do use this language of spiritual, not religious, which, you know, according to many religious studies scholars, we tend to not take that distinction too seriously because we tend to think of religion as something that is far more complex than simply a static belief system. The history of religions has shown that, in fact, religion entails a number of dimensions like ritual uh, and, and a, a, a set of goals uh, that reach beyond just a static belief system.
0: So part of, part of what's going on here in the book is you're talking about uh, how many have criticized yoga as simply a, a commodity, this modern postural yoga. Um, but then if we consider how these insiders define and create their own boundaries of what yoga is, uh, we can find new understandings. Uh, and, and this is why you call it a body of religious practice. Um, can you walk us through how how those arguments work? Why are why are people dismissing it as merely a product? And then, what do we gain by thinking m- maybe more uh, fully or deeply with insiders' perspectives on this?
1: Yeah. So uh, I mentioned earlier that yoga is a multi billion dollar industry in the United States alone, and we see it everywhere from suburban street corner yoga studios to advertisements for the Gap. And so yoga is very much something that in its popular varieties has become steeped in commodities, the yoga mats, the yoga clothing. Uh, And so many contemporary scholars of the history of yoga, the sociology of religion, uh, transnational religion, religion in contemporary culture, many of these scholars have chosen to basically ignore yoga because they think of it as something that can be reduced to the mere commodification of what is otherwise an authentic religious tradition um, in its popularized forms. But I, what I attempt to do in the book is look at, okay, how are we defining religion? And if we adopt... Uh, a definition of religion that uh, that is actually conducive to uh, the history of religions as we study it in the in history, in, in religious studies departments. And what I mean by that is a definition that actually allows us to entail what we claim the history of religions entails. And that definition for me um, includes a number of different, Uh, Dimensions, first of all, set of behaviors that are set apart or treated as sacred, as uh, other than ordinary or mundane, that are grounded in a shared worldview, but that worldview need not be all-encompassing, that are grounded in a shared set of values or goals concerned with resolving weakness, suffering, or death, and that are reinforced through myth and ritual. So this is the definition of religion or body of religious practice that I adopt in my analysis of yoga. And I argue, you know, if we think of religion through these various lenses. We find that in contemporary popularized varieties, all of these can be present. They're not always present, but they certainly can be. Um, and so many, yoga insiders do treat their yoga routines as a ritual ritual set apart from everyday life that is beyond ordinary that is transformative and is linked to the worldview that is dominant in consumer culture and that is that the body is a part of the self and so through enhancing the body whether it's through physical fitness psychological well-being or beauty we're becoming better people. And uh, this is linked to the shared set of goals, resolving weakness, suffering and death. Uh, in consumer culture, we valorize uh, youth and yoga. The yoga industries definitely has definitely uh, appealed to that popular desire to, to elongate the youthful period of life. And and to 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 whatever extent possible, reduce uh, weakness and aging. Uh, and these are all reinforced through myth, this narrative, or I should say narratives. Again, I, I talked about some of the patterns of the various narratives, being that yoga has these ancient origins in India, um, can be tied to texts, particularly the Yoga Sutras. Um, that have ancient Indian origins um, or to cultural complexes like Vedic culture or the Indus Valley Civilization.
0: Now, for many contemporary Hindus and Christians, um, an important question arises, um, and that's if yoga really is religious, what are going to be the consequences of its rapid popularization? And you kind of discussed this, Through two uh, similar but different cases that essentialize what yoga is. One, you posit a Christian yoga phobic position, um, and then another a Hindu origins position. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what these two groups are up to and why they define yoga in the the ways they do?
1: Yeah. So some Christians, including really high profile Christians like Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Pat Robertson, television evangelist and founder of the Christian Coalition of America. And even the Roman Catholic Church uh, has, have warned about the dangers of yoga, given the perceived incompatibility between what they believe is its Hindu essence and Christianity. And so, this is the position I call the Christian yogaphobic position, which which, like I said, takes a variety of forms um, because there are various advocates coming from very different Christian traditions um, but i uh, I use the Christian yogaphobic position as a way to categorize these Christian warnings against Christians doing yoga, and some of these advocates add that yoga's popularization threatens the Christian essence of American culture. So Albert Moeller is my key example of that in selling yoga. Uh, So there's two things to to fear for Moeller. There's the state of your soul and there's uh, the state of our nation. Um, These are both under attack by the popularization of yoga, according to Moeller. Now, on the other side, there are Hindu protesters, most notably uh, the Hindu American Foundation, which uh, who criticize yoga insiders for failing to recognize yoga's so-called Hindu origins and illegitimately co-opting yoga for the sake of profit. So their position I call the Hindu origins position. They're basically claiming that yoga has been illegitimately stolen from the Hindu religion by profit-seeking entrepreneurs and that the type of yoga that's popularized isn't real, authentic yoga. Rather, it's this corruption of yoga's true, authentic form. So the two positions are strikingly similar, most significantly insofar as they lean on the misconception that yoga is definitively Hindu. Uh, This idea is based on revisionist histories that essentialize yoga's identity ignoring its actual historical and lived heterogeneity uh, and so as i mentioned earlier uh, by the first millennium of the common era yoga was widespread in south asia and hindus buddhists jains and, and, and many others prescribed yoga systems uh, which varied dramatically across different traditions um So so throughout its pre-modern history, yoga was, uh, as I put it in the book, it was culturally South Asian, but did not belong to any single religious tradition. Um, Likewise, the history of modern postural yoga problematizes the identification of yoga as Hindu. That history, as shown by other scholars on the history of modern yoga, is, is a history of cultural encounters in the process of constructing something new, in response to transnational ideas and movements. So that modern postural yoga has more in common with military calisthenics from the uh, late 20th and early 20th century, modern medicine and the physical culture of gymnasts and bodybuilders and martial experts than it does with yoga systems that uh, were pre-modern.
0: Now, there's there's tons of other stuff in the book we Haven't had time to talk about, but I've kept you longer than I probably should have. Um, Before I let you go, though, um, could you tell us about the types of things you're working on now, future projects, publications?
1: Sure. Well, let's see. Uh, I am focusing now on a few different projects, but uh, the biggest project is one that is looking at yoga among disenfranchised. Populations. So, what I did with selling yoga was I looked at the popularization of yoga and I looked at the most widely consumed yoga varieties, Bikram yoga, Iyengar yoga, for example. And I spoke mostly about the practices of of privileged populations uh, when it came to yoga. People who could afford to pay for expensive yoga classes, expensive yoga gear, and, and so on. Uh, my, my next project aims to look at how modern postural yoga is uh, some a system that is increasingly being practiced among uh, low-income communities, uh, high-risk urban youth, and I think, in a way, most significantly, uh, incarcerated populations. In the United States alone, we have two million incarcerated people. And uh, the criminal justice system, in combination with social stigma, relegate the incarcerated to the status of second-class citizens and uh, confine them not only in the prison-industrial complex, but even if released to a marginalized subculture where they're denied access to mainstream society and its economy. And so yoga is increasingly being introduced into prison systems as a form of rehabilitation and empowerment for those who are otherwise systematically oppressed. And so I'm interested in looking at how yoga has or has not served as a body of religious practice among these various disenfranchised populations and how it has or has not served as a method of empowerment and rehabilitation.
0: Sounds great. Good luck with that. Thanks. Yeah. thanks a- and thanks again for uh, talking about your great book.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: That was my conversation with Andrea Jane about selling yoga, From Counterculture to Pop Culture, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.